0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's way too loud, right? Is it too loud? It's too loud? <laughs> okay. Now, how is that now? Still a little echoey from here. Is that too loud? Well, oh, I don't know either. <laughs> so, how is that? That's pretty loud. Yeah. Okay. Huh? It's what? <laughs> Start over. I didn't say much. Blah blah. <laughs> so, unity of emptiness and compassion. And the the point, really the, the main point I want to make is not that, it's two ways of talking about or two aspects or manifestations of the same reality, the same understanding, the same wisdom. It's not as if really... True understanding of emptiness, of the non, um, that no experience is lasting or there's no specific self in anything. There's no way that that real understanding does not manifest as compassion or loving kindness, friendliness, or equanimity. They just go together. And conversely, the real depth of compassion the ability to really be present, that quivering of the heart, together with, to be here for one's own difficulties, for another's difficulties, uh, it gets more and more possible with greater and greater depth and breadth. It's only through the wisdom of emptiness. The two really do, they're really the same, two aspects of the same thing. But, of course, as as life is as our practices as we develop things don't all be completely balanced all the time and we can we can kind of in our mind put too much emphasis on one or the other or think one's missing and get kind of upset because it's not all perfectly balanced every moment and so here a lot of what we've been talking about we talk about both but in terms of the practice of mindfulness the practice of insight in terms of the the teachings of uh, anatta, dependent origination, the sense of non-clinging, really recognizing the emptiness of self, the freedom of heart and mind in the mind of non-clinging. As quite a few people have said, there can be moments when that that recognition is really freeing and other moments when some of the words that have been used are Can feel alien, unfamiliar, uncaring, inhuman. Uh, Kind of, uh, as as Guy said, he thinks from Trungpa, nostalgia for samsara. You just want to get back to it, it feels like we're really in there, in the juice, really, you know. That's really what it's all about. And compassion would be in there with your heart ringing and caring and crying and grieving. And without that oomph, you know, something's missing. And so sure, sure, part of it is in touching the space and and more and more the sense of the the freedom of the heart and mind of non-clinging, it is unfamiliar. Hopefully it gets more familiar, you know, but at first it is unfamiliar. And our habit of not liking the unfamiliar, well, unfamiliar, something must be wrong. Something is missing. Which, thank God, it's missing. That's the whole point of our practice. But something is missing at that point time. But that's also not all. You know, one of the lovely ways that, uh, that some Tibetans have of describing uh, the natural state of mind is this it's empty. It also has the quality of uh, spontaneous knowing. You know, as we've been pointing to, just natural cognizance, like, as I think Sally was saying, you hit the bell, you hear it. It's immediate, it just happens. Out of nothing going back to nothing, out of the emptiness, but that's spontaneous. The third quality that, that rounds it out because there's no shape and no nothing, but anyway, the third quality of nothingness is that it's ceaselessly responsive. That the heart and mind of awakening, of non-clinging of wisdom one in the real knowing of emptiness confronted with a situation requiring action will naturally respond from either compassion or loving kindness or joy or equanimity whatever appropriate ceaselessly responsive not distant empty indifferent cold void nothingness but it is possible you know what you say to Kind of fall into a view, a taste of emptiness that does seem alien, indifferent. To some of that's a near enemy, really, of equanimity. But you can kind of they call it falling into emptiness, where there is not really the the ceaselessly responsive nature. This is from Nochul Kempo, was a great Zogchen. Teacher, that the danger is that we hear too much too soon. We think we have understood shunyata, or emptiness, and we err on the side of the absolute in a nihilistic fashion, and we're obscured by concepts, the concept of emptiness. Nagarjuna said, it is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material, concrete reality. But far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. <laughs> I think believe in emptiness, because that's just a concept. It says, those who believe in things can be helped through various kinds of practice and through the way of skillful means. But those who have fallen into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to reemerge, since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, No gradual progression and nothing to do. So that, I think sometimes it might be what people are afraid is going to happen with just a little taste of the, you know, the the non-clinging. So it's going to, oh, yes, it's all empty, so who cares, you know? It's all empty, it doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want, whatever happens to you, it's all empty, you know? If, not just in a moment, but over time, that's where your practice seems to be taking you, where your understanding seems to be taking you, yeah. Yeah, it's only partial. Something's missing. But don't get all freaked out, because unless we're really, really strongly attached to the view of emptiness, the concept of emptiness, simply the natural unfolding of Wisdom, Panya, awareness, understanding, the mind of non-clinging, naturally expresses as compassion. They really do support each other, and you can trust that. So really, in, in some taste of it's alien, it's unfamiliar, don't freak out, don't go running away. Give it a little more time. Let it open up. It takes time, a little bit on this side, a little bit on that side. If you trust, they come together. Manifest as compassion the understanding of emptiness, the mind of non-clinging exactly because the energy is released from that contraction, that obsessive self-referencing. That, you know, all our energy in a way is contracted around the sense of me, me, me. As Sogni Rinpoche gives the great example of, well, I like it anyway. He said, it's like, We measure without realizing every experience from the felt sense of me, you know, me here, seeing out there. But it's not that we say that, but it's a sense of this is me and I'm seeing, this is me and I'm hearing, you know, a lot of you. This is me and I'm thinking, oh, how can I be, help this poor person? How can I be compassionate or I'm not compassionate enough? So that is like you're at the center point He said in Tibet how they measure the foundation of a house. They pick the center point and a string and then measure all the way around to get the footprint of the house. So it's like that with us, the center point. And so those moments when that's not there, the energy, the energy is all released into a tenderness for beings, a connectedness with life. There's not this need to protect and fear and plan and manipulate and control. This is from Nisargadatta, Maharaj. I like this a lot. He says, once you can say with confidence, born from direct experience, I am the world, the world is myself. You are free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrows of humankind becomes your sole concern. So that release from self-obsession releases us, you could say, into being the world. And the natural movement of that is compassion, it's connectedness. But without that sense of personal, you know, personal doing or personal uh, fear or personal overwhelm, it's really very different. So just as we can, you know, fall into emptiness, into a concept of emptiness, this indifference, this separation, this all, you know, doesn't really matter, just floating above the clouds, this is equanimity. So we can also, without falling into compassion, without, when it's not held with the real understanding of emptiness, the equanimity that comes from that, the understanding that we don't control, the equanimity that allows us to really be here in the face of difficulty. Without that, that's when we can easily start to either drown, you know, in the amount of suffering or our reactions to it, or that kind of denial shutting down, you know. So many people say, here and other places, you know, I really want to open my heart. We do, so we have this sense often, almost physical, you know, of the, the heart here being contracted, our sense of connectedness to the world being separate. Someone mentioned the other, you can really feel when there's aversion in the mind, that sense of separation, that sense of alienation, when there's wanting to. So with the sincerest wish, or wanting or meaning to be compassionate and we are all of this is in degrees right but and when compassion isn't supported really held from the foundation of emptiness well at some point and we're all find the point we either have to pull back or we get lost so just to take this out of the realm of um theoretical you know, the question that comes up often is, how do, we, how do we contrive to stay open in this world? How can we keep connected? How can we even begin to open the pain in this world? And it's a bombardment, isn't it? Even just sitting here, where you don't have to listen to the news or the newspapers or talk to your family members, it's a bombardment. But just, I just want to share, I just picked three things from this week that I heard, the ones that happened to touch me out of, you know, 7,000 stories, just to remind us this is the world, and it is difficult. How without the deep knowing of emptiness do we expect to really be present without, without being ground down? So the first story, this is from Burma, or as you know, in Burma last year there were a lot of totally peaceful demonstrations from monks and from Um, activists and just from some normal people about, really about the prices getting high. They weren't even really complaining about the government at first. But anyway, a lot of demonstrations. So in the past year, a little over a year, they've arrested over 2,000 people. And two weeks ago, they started sentencing them. And they've sentenced in the last two weeks over 100 people, sentences like 65 years, 65 years for stuff like... Uh, using a cell phone without a permit, because that's what they can get them on. So I want just this story, because this is just, I heard um, an interview on the BBC and they were talking, the reporter was in Bangkok, because he couldn't get into Burma, and he was talking on the cell phone to one of the activists, her name is Nilar Tain, who at this point was in hiding. And it was a very clear connection. She was talking in Burmese, but you could hear her voice clearly. And um, it was being translated. So her story: she's kind of a she, and her husband, whose name is Chao Min Yu, but he's called Jimmy. They had both been in jail um, after the 1988 demonstrations. She was in jail for eight years, and he for sixteen. They came out. They got married in 2006 and had a little baby. And then, but they're part of this uh, 88 generation students. It's the kind of very well-organized, but very underground students, totally committed to um, peacefulness group. So when these demonstrations started in August, they both talked about, along with all their other people in their group, and they just, just marched in these peaceful demonstrations, that's all. So at this point, they were talking to her. Her husband had been arrested immediately in 2007. She had been on the run and hiding for months, at first with her young baby, a few months old baby, but that got too dangerous for the baby, and so the baby was with her in-laws. And basically, the government had um, guards all around the baby knowing that she would try to see it, so she couldn't go to see the baby. So they're having this conversation with her, and she sounded so clear, you know, and so not, not like fanatical rabbit at all. Very clear, very normal saying, sometimes I despair, I really miss my baby. My husband at least gets to see the family. He's in jail, but they can, the family can visit. I can't even do that, but this was my decision. We all decided who would go out and get arrested, who would go into hiding. We're just following that, and she said, you know, and the guy was saying, don't you ever despair, and she said, well, so, you know, I have moments when I think I could be doing something more useful, but my friend said, no, you know, don't give way to emotion, but she sounded really clear, and she said, you know, I've been through so much worse. She's also sick, asthma and bronchitis. When I was in jail and solitary and really ill, and they would bring me these things to sign, you know, I mentioned, I'm just really clear. When you know what's important and what you believe in, I know that gives me the courage and the strength, and I know I'm not going to despair, and I'm not going to. You know. So she said, I've been through worse than this. And so she was just so clear and calm and, you know, Anyway, she was, of course, arrested a couple of months ago. So she also, she just got 65 years. Her husband got 65 years and over 100 other people. And they're splitting them all up. They're not letting them stay in in Yangon anymore. They're splitting up all these people to jails all over Burma so their families can't get to them. They can't bring them medicine. They can't bring them food. Okay, that's one story. One story, and you know, there's hundreds of others in Burma. I'm just saying this not to go, just notice where our mind and heart goes with that. And just as an example, that that's one. Another one, this is just, you know, coming at us. This is this world. There's a lot of fighting in the Democratic Republic of Congo again. So I saw a little bit on the news. They were just interviewing a young boy, 10-year-old boy, who with his mother and grandmother had had to leave, you know, run from their village because his father and his three older brothers were killed, as were many, many people massacred. So they were kind of in hiding and trying to just get a little food and water from neighbors, but there wasn't very much. He had to leave school and could probably never go back, it seemed like, and the grandmother, who was 90 plus years old, was out for three or four days kind of doing walkabout, sleeping rough, just trying to find some food to bring back to the family because she's afraid they'd starve to death. And then they're talking, you know. You could see the people just sitting there talking to them. That's another story. And again, just notice, can we take it in? Can we be here? Does the mind get sad? Does it push it away? Does it blame? Does it get angry? And there's no right or wrong. It's just for us with wisdom to see what's compassion, how much, you know, push it away. Third, just one of, you know, a billion stories of old age. That's no blame, but it's what happened. The mother of a very good friend of mine, 91 years old, know her well, Germany. She's been very bright, very active, you know, slowly, you know, getting weaker. Had a stroke about two months ago. And was in intensive care for two days and then back to the assisted living. So um, her daughter and her son, my friend, came, He came from Asia, and they've been taking care of her. She's been back in the hospital with, in, you know, internal bleeding and then back out again. And she is not so clear anymore. She's kind of, she says, part gibberish and part talking, and her, her body's really weak, and she's, she's never been afraid of death. And he said, now she's like talking to her dead relatives and calling on spirits. And, and she wasn't real religious, but saying, please, I'm ready. You know, please help me come to where you are. Please help me come to the other side. But her body won't give up. You know, it keeps getting worse. And then she's in the hospital, and then she's back. And this has been going on and on. And so they sleep there. They take care of her. They wash her. They feed her. She's in, You know, and so what she's going through to be there with that, what they're going through to be there with that. Just to know that this is one of however many billion stories. And I watch for myself. When can I be there? I think of her a lot. When does my mind not want to go there? When does it just want to shut it out? Just seeing all of that. This is what we're bombarded with in this life. And if our idea of compassion is coming on a really deep level from from a sense of, of me personally doing something. You know, holding or creating this mental state. We that's not that's helpful, inclining the mind towards compassion rather than anger, rather than shutting down. That's helpful. That's that's part of what I'll talk about. But in the big picture, if it's all coming from a sense of self, from a sense of me, we can't maintain it. You know at some point it gets overwhelming i'm saying maybe it doesn't for you but at some point just to be open in this world so without emptiness we drown one way or the other oh there's a great quotation from james baldwin i just saw well i don't find it oh here it is James Baldwin, you know, the writer, said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because that they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And so like I could see for me in in stories where there's a sense of a political oppressor or people acting in really awful ways, hate might be strong, but anger or blame, that is easier than feeling the pain. That's what compassion calls us to do. Without the panya, the wisdom, the insight, and whatever, you know, it just has to, we just start with a little insight. Without that, the personal, individual strength mind can't hold it. But when it's that sense, like Nisargadatta says, where we, we can say with confidence, You know, I am the world, the world is me. Then there's, I don't have to hold it. It's just how it is. And we move from having to be the compassionate person, having to somehow overcome, to just this, what I, the phrase that I really like is that of a sense of of bearing witness. Just being able to be here. And we start just with our own pain. Bearing witness, or as I heard on NPR, they have a, a series called StoryCorps where they just have people write in and tell a short little snippet of some story of their life that's important that they want to share. And their kind of motto for this is, you know, um, to listen is an act of love. Bearing witness is an act of courage, an act of compassion that willingness, that ability to be present, to see through. For for myself, I'm really inspired by people who've done that with their lives, by many artists, poets, writers, artists, who maybe they weren't the activists in a way of, you know, marching or political or doing something in that way, but that ability to really bear witness without falling into anger and hatred. And sharing that is a really powerful force for connectedness and compassion in this world, I believe, to me. For a tiny little example, the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, who was one of the most famous poets in Russia in the 20th century. And her life just spanned from the before the revolution, through the revolution, through the Civil War and the starvation. And then all the purges and the terror of all the years of Stalin, where her friends, her husband, her son were all arrested. Some of them were killed. Some of them were sent to gulags. She wasn't allowed to write. And then the starvation in um, what's now St. Petersburg then Stalin during during World War II. And just on and on and on, you know. And she was just part of all of that and able to write about it. Just this little quick little... She's talking about what this was called the Yezhov Terror in 1930s, 1937, one of the big purges when Yezhov was the head of the secret police at that time. And just, you know, so many people were swept up and sent to jail. And if it was one of your relatives, mostly the women weren't, they would go and stand in line at the jail in Leningrad every day to hope to hear where their relative was and hand over a package of food every day, every day. So. She's saying, this is the beginning of this whole poem called Requiem for the five years, 1935 to 40. No foreign sky protected me. No stranger's wing shielded my face. In other words, she didn't leave for Europe as a lot of intelligentsia could have. I stand as witness to the common lot, survivor of that time, that place. In the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. One day somebody in the crowd identified me because she was quite famous. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold who had of course never heard me call by name before. Now she started out of the torpor common to all of us and asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face." And then there's a whole long poem described. But it's a beautiful poem. It's filled with heart. All our stuff is filled with heart, with sadness, with appreciation of beauty, of love, of life. It's not like a hateful rant. That's what bearing witness is. So where do we start? That's what our practice is. Can we bear witness to ourselves? to what's going on in your own mind and body here, sitting here. It doesn't matter if you think, well, it's just a knee pain and people are starving. That's denial. That's resistance. That's pushing it away. know, my pain doesn't count. Pain is pain. Suffering is suffering. We're not so special that our pain doesn't count, you know? So. Can we bear witness? What is my pain then becomes the pain of all. This is His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says, in talking about bodhicitta, of course, you're familiar with compassion itself. Karuna translates as the quivering of the heart, you know, in connection with suffering, in connection with pain. Natural expression of the awakened heart. Bodhicitta, the awakened heart, Tender really leads us to practice with the intention, with the wish that through our practice we can awaken in order to be able to bring all beings to awakening. So that's a vast intention. A vast, less like the most vast aspect of compassion. I'm not saying we should have that. I'm just saying for the this is the Dalai Lama talking about that. As I mentioned last week, it's a beautiful and very Um, supportive and inspiring aspiration because it gives us the courage to uh, come back and bear witness to ourselves. And this is the Dalai Lama saying, how does this tender heart, this bodhicitta develop? He says, first, through deep insight into what suffering is. And that arises by focusing on our own experience. And then from that, Compassion strengthens with a sense of the empathy and connectedness with other beings. But the point I want to make now is that simply by bearing witness in this way, this willingness to be here for our own experience, it naturally opens up to empathy with all beings in that moment when that so me-centricness lets go. What had been my own particular brand of grief or sorrow or back pain or illness, oh, this is just grief. All beings experience grief. Payment Chodron has a lovely, well, it's actually from Stephen Levine. So Payment Chodron's quoting Stephen Levine. She's talking about bodhicitta, this kinship with the suffering of others, this inability to continue to regard it from afar the discovery of our soft spot, the discovery of bodhicitta, a Sanskrit word that means noble or awakened heart, inherent in all beings. Stephen Levine writes of a woman who was dying in terrible pain and feeling overwhelming bitterness. At the point at which she felt she couldn't bear the suffering and resentment any longer, she unexpectedly began to experience the pain of others in agony. A starving mother in Ethiopia, a runaway teenager dying of an overdose in a dirty flat, a man crushed by a landslide and dying alone by the banks of a river. She said she understood that it wasn't her pain, it was the pain of all beings. It was not just her life, it was life itself. We awaken this bodhicitta, this tenderness for life, when we no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. That's what's going on in our practice. Opening, you know, so often you feel vulnerable, fragile, it's an opening deeper and deeper to that. But you see why there's also the opening into the emptiness, the non clinging, the not, it's not all about me, the two. Have to go together. They don't always develop completely evenly, you know? So sometimes it's so fragile, it's so vulnerable, it's just we're so tender and the mind can't hold it, you know? So then that's time when we say pull back and we work more with awareness. We work more with a sense of awareness doesn't care, awareness can hold everything. Then there's other times like, ah, yeah, awareness doesn't care, who okay, okay, let's just come back into. It the tenderness. But mostly, it takes care of it for itself. And that's why, I think Annie said this the other night, the difficult parts of a retreat of our whole life are so important. Where else can we first bear witness to the human state, not just the human state, but that's the one we know, where else can we bear witness to it? But also, this is exactly the place where the wisdom of non-reactivity, of acceptance, is changing the habit. So the difficult stuff that comes up are patterns, our greeds, our aversions, our self-hatreds, and it all feels like, oh, this is all collated yeah. this is the supposed to, stuff that's supposed to go away. If I had any understanding whatsoever this stuff wouldn't be coming and then we, you know, we just get lost in that. Instead of seeing, oh, right, kalesa, greed, aversion, fear, delusion. This is the human condition. Again, you're so special, you know, three weeks, six weeks, three years of practice and no more of that comes up? No, it comes. It's arising. This is what we're here to see. How the mind meets it in the moment is what's creating new karma, what's creating new patterns. So in that moment of hating the pain, that incredible greed for the 17th piece of cake or the first piece or whatever, The aversion, the self-judgment, the judgment of somebody else, the feeling just awful about yourself because you haven't been kind, the pain in your back, whatever it is. In that moment when, oh, it's like this. Aversion, I really, yeah, aversion, it's like this. Wanting, I am such a greedy loser. Wanting is like this, (laughs) right? In that moment, in that moment, of acceptance, of bearing witness. What's being practiced is compassion, is acceptance. It's not just as we say awareness doesn't care in the moment of awareness, it's the same with compassion. I mean, first of all, compassion doesn't arise except in response to suffering, that's one thing. So maybe something beautiful is arising, you meet that without clinging, that's equanimity or friendliness of metta. But anyway, to really see that if you're able, even for moments, to bear witness to the difficulties in your mind, in your body, in the environment, in your memories, in your home life, this is how the wisdom of emptiness, of non-clinging, and the natural response of compassion are coming together and being strengthened doesn't seem like much just sitting there, you know, with your nudgy mind. But it is. It really is. It's a complex, the world is complex, situations are complicated, compassion. You know, really, again, why it has to come with wisdom, for it to be real, reliable, I, I like to say it needs to sort of come from the inside out rather than from the outside in. So in other words, compassion, wisdom, all of it, starts as a nice idea, we start with a concept, we work from that concept, of course, because that's how our minds are. We get a, Compassion means being with someone in pain, doing what we can to alleviate suffering, and yeah, that's great. And Our tendency is, as we've talked about intention, you know, the the motivation that leads to speech and action. That's the heart of Kama, that's the seed of all action, that's really where it begins. But in our normal life, in the way actions and response is kind of judged in the normal world, it's more like if... The desired result, you know, our actions, it was good or bad, it was useful or not, it was compassionate or not, dependent on if the desired result. You know, if we help somebody suffering, great, you know, I could be compassionate. We feel compassion and and we try to help and we just mess things up more, you know, and we, we tend to not think that was compassion, we think, I blew it, you know. Compassion should be able to fix everything. I mean, even the Buddha couldn't keep his kinfolk from going to war with each other. Compassion doesn't mean we can fix everything, and it takes a a real, the wisdom and the trust and the courage to keep coming back to uh, our inner understanding, our inner intention of being willing to be here, to bear witness with wisdom, and then act in the way that's appropriate, but from a mind of wisdom, not from a mind of wanting to fix or hating it and wanting to change it. And this, this can be very um, complex. I mean, we all know stories, friends tell me, of going on peace marches here a couple of years ago, and seeing how many of the activists who were really, this was a big part of their life, were so angry and so bitter and at some point, you know, frustrated and, and wanting to turn to violence and breaking windows, you know. It's understandable, but that's when the compassion or the wanting to change things for the good of the world but the motivation doesn't really come from that that deep wisdom of emptiness and that we can't control. That commitment really to understanding, to compassion. Or like we've worked with taught retreats for environmental activists, wonderful people, deeply committed, doing really important work. Lawyer, one lawyer who was, said said really uh working hard, but he said he he needed his anger. He said, I can't go into court without my anger. These other lawyers are so, you know, vindictive, and if I don't have my anger, I'll just be crushed, so don't give me meta. don't tell me about all this stuff. But he practiced, and at the end, he saw how you can't just compartmentalize. said, so, you know, the anger was eating him up, too, spewing out on his family, and he really saw that, you know? So to... To have the trust, the enormous faith that it takes and courage to see that we, you know, we'll go off, we'll, we'll try to do our best and end up responding from some sense of me, what's best for me, or from anger, or from fear. We'll all do that, or we'll shut down. We'll all do that. But to see that, okay, anger's like this, and come back again, just to our own pain. Bearing witness to our own pain and allowing ourselves to come back into contact with the the really the mind, the motivation, the intention of compassion. Over and over and over. Trusting enough not to act until we can get in touch with that. Joseph mentioned um, Martin Luther King the other night. There's one. Quotation from him I like very much on this line. I'll well, just so you know where he was coming from. This when he was in the Birmingham jail, this is one line he wrote in a letter. We are caught in an inescapable web of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly and everything I've read of him, the sense of never making someone the other. That compassion isn't just compassion for the obvious victim or the obvious person being oppressed. Compassion includes everybody, includes the world. And out of that one clarity, maybe one can see what seems the best action, but we don't always know. But this sense of commitment to that motivation. So he said once, the king, In 1963, after one of the terrible bombings of a church in Birmingham where these four little girls were killed, he said after that, I have come to see even more as we move towards our goal of justice that hatred must never be our motive. I refuse to become bitter. I mean, I can't even imagine. I refuse to become bitter. Or the Dalai Lama, uh, two or three, or a few years ago, when he was being berated by well, you know his his deep commitment to nonviolence and to nonviolent way of trying to um, get China to, you know, withdraw from Tibet, which of course isn't happening at all. And a few years ago, some young Tibetans were basically berating him and saying, you know, it's not working, it's not working, and. In this interview I read said tears were streaming down his cheeks, and he said, maybe you're right. Maybe it's not working, but I cannot be otherwise. Maybe I'm wrong, but I cannot be otherwise. You know, he could not abandon his deep commitment to compassion and nonviolence. It's a complex world. We can't know. We can't know all the situations. We can't control it all, can we have that that faith, that courage, and the willingness to be with the pain of our own sense of failure sometimes to trust in the power of the pure mind, the pure heart, to act from compassion, from caring, from connectedness. Without the wisdom of emptiness, I don't see how it's possible to keep doing that. The doubt, the confusion, would just get too strong. This is the Dalai Lama again. He's saying that compassion must be derived from our insight into emptiness. This is where the vast meets the profound. If we don't have that, we fall into despair, knowing that people's suffering is avoidable, that it is surmountable. Our sympathy for their and our inability to pull themselves out of this suffering can lead to a more powerful compassion. But if, we, if it's not supported by the wisdom of emptiness, our compassion may be strong, but it is likely to have a quality of hopelessness or even despair. I'm not saying this if we notice hopelessness and despair, don't jump on yourself. <laughs> of course, you know, we're not complete. of course there's going to be hopelessness and despair. We don't have to be afraid of it. That's again where we come back to bearing witness with ourselves. Oh, hopelessness is like this. But don't confuse hopelessness and despair for compassion. That's where the wisdom and our own self-compassion lets us be with it. And this is a line from Adi Ashanti I liked a lot. Saving all beings is not something that you do. Saving all beings is a verb that you become. So we really need like a, a resilient and a flexible heart, a real sense of trust in in the mind of non-clinging and a willingness to keep showing up even when the way isn't clear, even when it seems like we don't even know what to do and that compassion is not, it just seems like it's not strong enough. It seems like the situation is too complicated or too horrible like the Dalai Lama, you know, with Tibet. It doesn't seem to be working. So then we really find, we really come down to, what do I really know? Where do I really place my faith? And at this point, having a should in our mind, I should put my faith in compassion is not going to work. you know. But that's OK, and we keep on practicing, we keep on looking, we keep on seeing. And this is where compassion is supported by equanimity. A couple of examples. Without the wisdom of equanimity, we might we get we get confused because the motivation itself. So, say the deep sense that can be a true compassionate motivation doesn't mean when we act from it that we get the results we want. The results of actions are out of our control. How hard is it? There's a great a story that we can't control the outcome. We can't control others' responses, and often we try as, we try to get as much of the picture of a situation. But often we don't have the big picture. The story I often tell from Sister Chan Kong, who is the the nun who has worked with Thich Nhat Hanh ever since the Vietnam War, and she they were both peace activists, but really committed to nonviolence, to compassionate action, and to mindfulness practice. You know, very sincere practicing Buddhists, and so. She told the story in the Vietnam War where she was put in jail for passing out some leaflets in South Vietnam. And she was in jail with, in, in a, one cell with a bunch of other women. And in the cell were two young girls, 11 and 12 years old, that had been just caught up in a sweep of a Via, of a village that South was saying, oh, these are all Viet Cong, threw them all in jail. But, you know, the girls had done nothing, and they were in it was a bad environment. So Sister Phong, as her name was then, got released because her family knew the chief or whatever. And as she was going out, she had an exit interview with the head of the prison. And so very compassionate and very forthrightly, as she is, she's a very strong woman, said, "Uh, you know, these two young girls, they did nothing, 11 and 12. They really, you know, this is bad for them. They should be released. And the head of the prison said, oh, I see that the prisoners are talking to each other. They're communicating with each other. And this must stop. I'm going to make the conditions more rigorous. And that was it. So with all the compassion and wisdom that she could have, doing what seemed right, things got worse. Can we stay open with that, you know? Can we bear witness to our own experience, not get lost in anger, bear witness to our anger or our sense of failure, or not give up? on the power of compassionate action of a pure mind and heart. I know I'm throwing out all these challenges. I'm not saying I have some answer. I'm saying this is a profound, a profound exploration for our life. And it's going to bring us up against everything in our hearts and minds and in the world that's in the way of that, that's both seductive and scary and painful We'll get lost. We'll turn away. But the faith that comes even just a glimpse of the emptiness of not-self, of the purity of our basic goodness, we can, can put it that way, the more we learn to recognize and trust this basic goodness of who we are, of the natural mind, then even when we can't quite find it in all the craziness, That's more and more what we come back to, sort of like like how Martin Luther King or Sister sister Chan Kong does. So just to say, and it's not that a one-time thing. It's a life process. Enormous patience, enormous kindness to ourselves as well as to others. So again, this is Sister Fong. This is the first thing. She wrote this in the Vietnam War. She was just in her late teens at this time. And two of their friends, social workers that were working in a village, had been killed by a grenade attack. And so she, this was her eulogy that she said at the funeral. We cannot hate you, you who have thrown grenades and killed our friends, because we know that people are not our enemies. Our only enemies are ambition, jealousy, hatred, and the misunderstanding that leads to such acts of violence. Please allow us to remove all misunderstanding so that we can work together for the happiness of the Vietnamese people." So that's powerful to begin with when your friends have been murdered. But I read this because it's not as if she just kind of sprang out this being of compassion and that, you know, her life just rolled out like that. It was an act continuing, moment after moment, act of commitment and rediscovery of the place of mindfulness, the place of wisdom that allows compassion, that action to come. And I say this because she wrote quite some years later, you know, she and Thich Nhat Hanh were both not not able to return to Vietnam in the middle of the war and they lived in France and started Plum Village and for many years. So she wrote an um, autobiography, quite some. So I think this was in the 80s I read this, which was already 20 years later. And she's talking about her commitment to never act unless she can act from compassion. So she's still an activist. And at this point that she's writing, there was a phase when the Vietnamese government was arresting a lot of monks and nuns and artists. And she was involved in a campaign. Whenever someone was arrested, she'd write letters to the government and try and get a whole thing going, sort of like amnesty does now. So this is her talking about that. Every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry. And I knew that I had to do walking meditation. Sometimes I would walk several hours in order to regain my calm. Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to relax my heartbeat knowing how unfairly the authorities had acted in arresting such a monk, nun, or artist. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm, and people found it easier to cooperate. What inspires me is that sense of just the ongoing commitment. And the understanding that it is an ongoing process to reconnect with our serenity, our basic goodness, that to act from the genuine motivation of compassion and caring is so much, it may get better results, but it's really more the expression of wisdom and compassion. And her willingness to wait weeks, if that's what it takes. And for us to know this is someone who's devoted her life and who's a remarkable woman. And this is, this is what it is. This is what, know it or not, we signed up for when we set our foot, you know, onto our spiritual path of awakening. And it's beautiful. It's inspiring and it inspires others. But bearing witness to our pain, to our suffering balanced with the equanimity of emptiness means we can open to more. We can open to more and it's not suffering it really is that that beauty of connectedness and so with wisdom compassion opens with bearing witness to our own suffering and others compassion opens with the simple intention to act from kindness that's some big thing but just a willingness to have some kind act compassion opens and this is from um, Tulku Ergen, who was a wonderful, very powerful Dzogchen um, master. Well, his son, Sokni, first said, it works both ways, compassion naturally manifests as an expression of emptiness. So when we understand emptiness, compassion naturally manifests. But also, compassion starts with methods of compassion and kindness, just simply being kind can open us up because to be kind we're touching that place and just in little things it doesn't you know i've been talking about wars and really you know people dying but every aspect of our life nisargadatta says when we realize where the world all aspects of our life are calling us to wake up to uh, our non-separation to our compassion to bearing witness there's a um Dingo Kensi Rinpoche in his book Heart Treasure of the Enlightened Ones is really um, uh, a commentary on a Tibetan text, but he's talking about Chenrizi, who is the bodhisattva of compassion, and I'm just putting this a little in my own language and not with all the depth of the teaching, but a little practice that I found so lovely and inspiring, so Chenrizi, The Bodhisattva of compassion embodies the great compassion inseparable from the vast expanse of the Buddha's wisdom. So he embodies the totality of emptiness and compassion. And so this practice is really seeing all aspects of experience as the manifestation of Chenrizi himself. So he says, through the blessing of Chenrizi's body, you perceive the whole universe as Chenrizi's Buddha field. Through the blessing of Chenrizi's speech, you perceive all sounds in the universe. The sounds of water, of fire, of wind, the cries of animals, of human voices, as the reverberation of Chenrizi's voice. So imagine that. Next time someone's breathing too loud in the hall, it's Chenrizi's voice. Next time the Franklins are calling, it's (laughs) Chenrizi's voice. And even more. Through the blessing of Chenrizi's mind, you experience all thoughts as the display of Chenrizi awareness. Try that. I was practicing on a self-retreat like this, that when any thought was just the magical display of Chenrizi, boy, my relationship to stuff was really different. Every animal, every sight, every sound, every mo- this is just the display of emptiness and compassion. This is just Chenrizi manifesting everything everything just becomes an aspect of emptiness and compassion it becomes the way that we open up to the world so that our whole life becomes you know not every moment but just play with that an expression nothing is too mundane nothing is too gross so just a a couple of little stories of kindness like that the power of kindness From NPR again, one of these um, little stories. This is from a prisoner who's been in jail for 20 years. And he said, one day in the prison yard, a scruffy orange cat showed up, and I was one of the first to go and pet it. I had not touched a cat or a dog in over 20 years. I spent at least 20 minutes crouched down by the dumpster as the cat rolled around and luxuriated beneath my attention. What he was expressing outwardly, I was feeling inwardly an amazing bit of grace to feel him under my hand and know that I was enriching the life of another creature with something as simple as my care. I believe that caring for something or someone in need is what makes us human. Over the next few days, I watched other prisoners responding to the cat. Every yard period, a group of prisoners gathered there. They stood around talking and taking turns petting the cat. These were guys you would normally not find talking to each other. Sometimes I saw an officer, a guard in the group, not chasing people away, but just watching and seeming to enjoy it along with the prisoners. Bowls of milk and water appeared, along with bread, wisely placed under the edge of the dumpster to keep the seagulls from getting it. The cat was obviously astray and in pretty bad shape. One prisoner brought out his small blunt tipped scissors and trimmed burrs and matted fur from his coat. People said, that cat came to the right place. He's getting treated like a king. This was true, but as I watched, I was also thinking about what the cat was doing for us. We need, you know, there's a lot of talk about what's wrong with prisons in America. We need more programs, we need more psychologists and treatment. But I think what we really need is a chance to practice kindness ourselves, not to receive it, but to give it. And then one last example of how simple compassion can be. Just every day, from Studs Terkel. You know, he just died in October. Kind of, he's a, a legendary oral historian, and so this was his last. They they recorded this on NPR. He was. He loved the human voice, and he noticed when it was missing, as it was one day on an airport shuttle train in Atlanta. I've taken these shuttle trains a lot. You know, They come every 90 seconds, taking you between terminals. So he's on this shuttle train. He says, a machine-like voice rang out from above, informing Turkle and his fellow passengers the train was about to leave the concourse. Otherwise, it was dead silent. The pneumatic doors were closing when a young couple pushed them open to get in, Turkle said. Without missing a beat, that voice above says, Because of late entry, we're delayed 30 seconds. <laughs> people looked at that couple as if that couple had just committed mass murder. <laughs> the two cringed, the couple cringed, and Turkle spoke up. George Orwell, your time has come and gone, he yelled out. The passengers greeted his attempt at humor with complete silence. <laughs> He says, and now they looked at me, and I'm with the couple. The three of us are at the Hill of Cavalry on Good Friday, Turkle said. My god, where's the human voice, Turkle asked the passengers. Nobody says anything. So he noticed a baby on the train. He went up to the baby. Sir or Madam, Turkle said to the infant, what is your opinion of the human species? And the baby started to giggle. I said, thank god. The sound of a human voice. (laughs) So. From Chokinima. When watching the magical display of this world as it seems to be, spontaneously an overwhelming despair and pity well up in me. And watching its nature of innate simplicity as it really is, I cannot help but feel wonder and break out in laughter. When watching the one who feels pity and the one who is laughing, both disappear and cannot be found. Now what to do? So let's just sit quietly for a minute. That's what we'll do.